Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you could get a copy of this program and other helpful documents. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Tim. You're listening to KABF in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm Carrie McCoy, and it's time for me to get all up in your business. By that, I mean to say, share my business knowledge and wisdom with you, our listener. I consider this next hour to be a mentoring show for small business owners or for those who dream of owning a small business. My hope is that if you own or want to own a small business, you will gain some insights today of the risks and the rewards. Now you may be asking yourself, what makes this lady qualified to do this? And the answer is easy. It's experience. I started my company, Arkansas Flag and Banner, over 40 years ago with a meager $400. During the last four decades, Arkansas Flag and Banner has grown from door-to-door sales to telemarketing to mail order and catalog sales, and now we rely heavily on the internet. Each change in sales strategy required a change in company thinking and procedures. My wisdom, confidence, and my company grew. My initial $400 investment now produces nearly $4 million in annual sales. In this next hour, here's what not to expect. Don't expect textbook answers or pie-in-the-sky theories. What you will hear is a candid conversation about real-world experiences on topics I hope you'll find interesting. So be prepared for the truth. It's not always easy to hear. For example, in business, there are very few overnight successes. I worked part-time jobs for nine years before Arkansas Flag and Banner grew enough to support just me. It's now grown and expanded so much that to operate efficiently, we require, are you ready for this? A purchasing, shipping, technology, marketing, sales, production, and customer service department, plus a retail store. 25 people make their living from working at Arkansas Flag and Banner. But that didn't happen overnight. Starting and owning a business takes persistence, perseverance, and patience. This is when I usually introduce my guest, another fellow entrepreneur, and we talk candidly. We share our stories, our business experiences, and our lessons learned along the way. But today's going to be different. We're going to air excerpts from previous shows. Tim and I picked three interviews edited each of them down to a mere 15 minutes, and presto, we have today's show. Our choices are Ryan Hergett, founder of Chef Shuttle, artist Matt McLeod, founder of McLeod Fine Arts Gallery, and Barry Corcoran, founder of his own financial planning company, who is not only an entrepreneur, but he also is a consultant for small businesses. Before we get started with our three awesome condensed interviews, I want to introduce my technician and my everyday partner in crime. You just heard him, Mr. Tim Bowen. Say hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. Okay, let's get started. Who did we pick for the first interview? And I'll introduce him. I think we're going to do Barry Corcoran first. All right. Barry is the founder of Barry M. Corcoran & Company, a financial investment firm. His company and his life's work has been to help clients execute and make informed decisions about their retirement and their family's legacy. He was voted both by Money Magazine and Bloomberg's Wealth Manager Magazine as one of the best financial planners in the whole United States. When asked, Barry is available and is certified to give expert testimony in a court of law about the best practices for financial planners. He was once the host of his very own radio show, Ask the Experts on KARN, and now he is a recurring guest on THV 11's morning show in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
And last but not least, Barry co-authored the book Widowed, beginning again personally and financially. And the profits from the sale of this book are donated to nonprofit organizations that assist widows. He's a good guy. It was hard to cut our hour-long interview with Barry down to 20 minutes because he just has so much good advice. But here is Barry giving excellent advice on how to retire from your small business, and he gives three options. I hope you will enjoy. So I asked you on today because I got an email from a listener, and I quote, can you speak, she asked, can you speak to the issues around multi-generational businesses and succession issues? Before we get to the listener's question, I want you to tell us about yourself. What are you doing right now, and what is your current passion? Oh, wow. Um, well, my, Catch you off guard? Yeah, uh, just, just a little bit. You know, um, having been in this business for decades, we established plans and strategies with families. And my practice is maturing to the point where I'm seeing those plans actually be executed and come into play. And we're seeing wealth and opportunity move to the next generation. And so for me, that's very exciting to set up uh, an estate plan or a trust 20 years ago and to see it actually do what it's supposed to do and to do it very effectively. How'd you do did you do good? Uh, uh, we, well, sure. We did very well. Sounds yeah. like you did. Top 10 in the <laughs> top 54th in the country. Yeah. So, so I, I think that for financial advisors to get to the point where your, your practice is maturing and you're working with the, ch- the children of the second generation and having a voice to the third generation, their children, of the wealth that mom and dad put together is, is very, very interesting, very rewarding work. I bet. So, Barry, you're a small business owner. You started this business, and you also help small business owners like me. So to speak to our listeners' question, let's say you're ready to start thinking about your exit strategy for you in your business. And I think your three choices are these, and you may have more. Pass it on to a family member. Oh, you could pass it on to your employees. ESOP, I love that. Mm -hmm. Sell it, figuring out what the value of it is, or dissolving it. Where do you want to begin on that topic? Which one? Well, uh, you know, it's obviously a very personal uh, family decision uh, about whether, you know, I guess the first discussion is, are we going to pass it on to the kids? And so when your kids are five or six years old, kind of hard for you to imagine them uh, even being interested or wanting to be involved in your business at all. And um, so as your children get older and they uh, develop their own interest and and their goals and, and what they want to do, Uh, it's not uncommon for the children not to do what mom or dad did. Uh, And so it it takes a while for a business owner to determine that there's not going to be a family member who's a good candidate to step into their shoes when when they retire. So you say there usually is a child that wants to go into the business, or there usually isn't? There usually isn't it. Isn't. Is not. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think more often the case that the that children just develop other interests and other passions that is not to sell flags or give financial advice or whatever the business is, and and or that maybe they're not as skilled or equipped to run the business uh, that was started by the previous generation. So it's it's a it's not uncommon at all, and, and it forces the business owner into one of the other uh, alternatives. But the, the first evaluation is, do I have anybody in the family who's going to do this? And you don't know. 
and you don't know. And, and, and it's uh, almost like you don't know until it's too late because you don't know until they get through high school and college or tech school and, and get their education and, and, and kind of get that youth part behind them and then begin to kind of think about what they want to do with their lives. And so they might be, for me, it took a long time. So I went to you yeah. when my kids were young, remember? Yep, right. and, I and, do. And uh, you helped me do a very extensive uh, plan about succession of my children and then yeah. we had to redo it again yeah how often do so, you have so to revisit at, yeah. so, so at the time in, in your case uh, w- when we looked at that your, your kids were really young yes. and, and we really couldn't uh, assess their ability to run your business or their desire to run their, their business and so it was about how do we capture that economic value of what you have built and then and then pass that along to them because the presumption was that they weren't, or we didn't know whether they were going to take on the business. And so, you know, when, when your kids get older, you begin to kind of sense or feel they're not going to be candidates or they are. So, so yes, when it, do you bring them in to, and ask them? When well, do you bring them all oh, in and no, say? The par- no, the parents, you know. You don't ask them. Well, you just need to review this every few years, and here's our plan. And, you know, gee, how do you feel about your son or daughter and their skill or ability or interest in running your business? And if the answer is, I'm not feeling it, then it's not going to work out. And I think that's a little bit of the problem because it takes a parent a number of years. I think maybe if I just kind of give it another year or so, my son or my daughter is going to be a good candidate, and then you know maybe it still doesn't work out. So then you find yourself, gee, here we are. My, my kids are in their 30s, and I'm in my 60s, and you know, kind of behind the curve to make a decision here. How do you transfer the business and then we'll move on to selling it or dissolving it. So your kids do want your business. That's that, and that's probably the most complicated of all the options. Because oh. selling it is, is a, a different path and um, that's actually easier than integrating the, you know, the children. Okay, then and, we'll and, start. And, and, mm-hmm. and probably the biggest problem with uh, having the kids step into the shoes uh, of the of the of the member who's, who started the business is the member lingers and stays on. Yeah. And, and the loyalty that the employee has to the company, but I've worked for this person for 40 years, and now this young whippersnapper is coming yeah. in here, and, and it's, just, it, it's just a different, very difficult uh, um, trans- so, transition for employees to make. So what we did, and I'll just share, I don't think it matters, sure. uh, we did a board yep. so that if I pass, Arkansas Flag and Banner goes into a trust. There was a board of three or an Arkansas flag and banner. And one was you, of course. Of course, you're my age. You may die, yeah. too. Yeah. And then the other one was a family member that rotated on and off every year, so a right. new family member. Right. And then and then we had just a, uh, like, a, a, a professional, a, right. a bank trustee so, or yeah. somebody. So, so, so let's kind of go back to that, you know, when you're talking about small business, that could either be a sole proprietorship, it, it might be a partnership or might be a limited liability company, might, might be a corporation. Right. So there's, there's legal issues about how you treat, uh, you know, all of those. In small business, with small business owners, there's not a board of directors. And the idea that you adopt a board of directors, even though you're the only person running the company. But that's what you something, do. Yeah, that's exactly what you should do is, is that you should have a kind of a quasi board of directors or a real board of directors that that help guide that business to you know down one path or the other and and so in the absence of of the business owner 
who is has all the experience and knowledge to you know to do that, and, and you lose that person, the board of directors steps in. And they guide the business, and it doesn't necessarily trigger the sale of the business because because the business owner has passed away. It just says that this committee of three people are going to be good stewards of the business, whether they keep it and then nurture it to see if one family member steps into those shoes or whether you sell it or some other transition. But the whole idea is to capture the value of the business. So it doesn't degrade or decline in value. That so that you can sell if you want to after you're gone. That's so one of the here, here's me. I don't ever want to sell my business. Probably. I mean, I might. I don't know. But right now, I don't think I'm going to sell my business. You, and will, I you, you will never sell your business. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> and I'll never retire, will I? No, you'll never retire. <laughs> I know. So I'll be sitting at the desk, and all of a sudden, one day, I will have a heart attack, and they'll find me in there with my cup of coffee, and they'll come to you. And they'll say, Mom is gone. What, is she, what did she have in place? And you will say, uh, we now have to start a board. There's Arkansas a board. Flag and Banner will now be run by a board and no longer by Carrie McCoy. And these are the board members. And y'all get together and I'll facilitate. And uh, we'll make decisions as a group. And if you all want to sell it, we'll sell it. If you all want to grow it, we'll grow it. If y'all all, all want to work in it, you can work in it. And it becomes their decision on what they want to do with their life and the business that I left them. Yeah, that, that board of directors or, or, or in some cases the, a trustee committee actually has the primary objective of stabilizing the business. That's you. Uh, You're saying yeah. that's you? Well, no, that's... No, the, the whole the, board. Yeah, the whole board. Okay. And, and so whether it's selling flags or, or you're selling chickens or... Or you have what, a restaurant. Or we have a restaurant. What, whatever that business is, is that they are to step in and stabilize and maintain and manage, make sure that there's a good manager and the business is managed well to be profitable and stabilize. It's good for the employees. It's good for you know, whoever gets the, the value of the business. But the whole key to it is, is that is that board or that trustee committee needs to have, if they don't have any experience in running a, a, a restaurant, they need to get a third party there that knows how to, 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 to do a, a restaurant. So you need, you need somebody who has keen business sense and, and specific experience with that industry, and then somebody who, who has an interest in making good decisions for your kids. So that's why we kind of have three, a committee of three. And even that committee of three could vote, I want to have a committee of five and get two more people they want on there. If Once they, that happens, if, they could say, you know, we're not smart enough. Let's yeah, get a lawyer yeah, and an attorney yeah, on this board with us. Yeah. So in your case, the committee would, would meet, they would get together, and they would evaluate, do we see anybody in the company who would be a good person to promote, to manage the business, and has the skill set, or we're going to do triage, we're going to hire somebody short-term just to keep daily operations going while we interview a new person to run the business and hire them to do so. Tell me what triage means. Um, Quit using big words on me. <laughs> quick, triage? He's got to have something with three. Emergency repair or emergency attention. Oh, that's like surgery. 
Yeah, well, that's what they do in, in the emergency room of hospitals. So, uh, okay, yeah. so, or yeah. we hire a triage, triage comes in and what, 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 so you have to, stops uh, the bleeding and, you, and you, shores you, it up. You have to immediately take the steps to keep the business stabilized and moving forward. And keep everybody feeling confident. And feeling, yeah. And as soon as you communicate that to the employees, there's somebody in charge, there is a plan, it's being executed, and it's going to be in our best interest. There's somebody in charge, there is a plan, and it's being executed and it's going to be in the company's best interest. Yes. Those are awesome. Those are exactly the issues. You said that perfectly. So you really need advice from somebody like you. This is a deep, this is a deep subject. It's very, it gets very complex. It's very, very, complicated. very Even for a very simple business, it gets very complex very quickly. Right. So, okay, let's say, let's say you decide you want to dissolve the business. My parents wanted to dissolve their business because, like you said, I didn't want it. And so I had my own thing going. And so they wanted to dissolve their business, and they did it. How do you suggest? I know they did it by inventory reduction. How else? What are your suggestions if you want to start dissolving your business and taking the money out of it? Well, once again, it depends entirely on the kind of business and what the assets are in the business. And it, and for each kind of business, um, there are certain legal issues that need to be addressed. And then there's income tax issues. And so somebody that owns a manufacturing firm um, has a completely different set of uh, dissolution issues or if you're going to dissolve the business uh, as compared to in a consultant or somebody that has a hair salon. Just They're just very, very uh, different businesses. So, so depending on a variety of factors, that there's in some cases a, a lot to consider. In cases where somebody has a corporation where you retain wealth inside the corporation. The challenge is to get that wealth out of the corporation. You can just stop doing business. And the challenge is if you've got wealth inside the corporation, you left money in there, it's, it's how do I get it out tax efficiently? And so uh, depending on a variety of factors, you develop a strategy that might take a few years actually to unwind that and, and, and then be permitted to dissolve the, the, the corporation. So my parents... They just began to cut their expenses. So they went from, back then you had lines coming in. So they had like four lines coming in. They went down to one line coming in. So they saved money on their telephone bill. Then they began to save money on their utilities. Then they began to cut back their payroll. And they began to take the money out over years out of the business. They reduced their inventory. And by the time they finally quit working, there wasn't much left in the business. Right. That's an example of a business that required a slow um, process by which you slow down the business. That's what they did. And you lower the volume of sales and you use various strategies and techniques to get the wealth out of the corporation tax efficiently into their hands. And sometimes that takes two or three years. And what's interesting about that is they couldn't have done it abruptly. They couldn't have said, hey, on December 31st, we're just going to kind of stop doing this and we'll shut it down. Uh, give the employees a bonus and, and call it a day. Why couldn't uh, they have done that? Be, because there has to be a business purpose for you to continue a business and 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 deploy some of these strategies. And, oh. you know, it, because it was a taxable event to take everything out of the corporation. Because it would have been too heavily of a tax burden if they had just stopped. So then, then you can distribute your assets. You pay off your debts. What's the biggest mistake that most people do when they do this? So they don't think about the tax ramifications? Yes. It's very easy to, to make a misstep in 
dissolving the company only to be hit with a, a gigantic tax bill a year, a year and a half later because you didn't realize what you were doing. So all your life you've worked and now all of a sudden you've exited not very um, strategically or the, intelligently and now all the money you've made you've had to go to pay the taxes. Your nest egg is scrambled. Your nest egg is scrambled. All right, so now you've got to get all your papers in order. Are there any special papers at closing your business? It's a, it's a nightmare. What are you talking about? <laughs> honest all right let's move on to selling it now we're going to selling your business well let we didn't me talk let about me, an ESOP where you could pass your business on to your yeah. well, uh, let me let me just speak to somebody who has a business a sole proprietorship and they, and they just kind of un, want to unwind it okay all, all of these licenses you know for city license and state and payroll taxes and all of these things that we do that are regulations and 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 businesses are required to do you've got to unwind all of that. You've got to send in notices to say, I'm not going to be in business anymore. Depending on the business, unwinding it could be extremely complex. What if you just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm dead. I don't care. What would happen? Who could they get? They will find you. They'll find, dig you up. Well, they will find you. Well, you can't retire and do that. If you retire, they'll find you. But you just drop dead. It's your kid's problem. Too bad. Well, they just, well, if you drop dead, obviously not a problem. But if you're trying to retire and and you just close your business, um, it, it, you're you, going to get letters from the IRS for the rest of your life. And they come knocking on your door. Okay, you're selling it. How do you come up with the value of your company? Because oh. I'm always disappointed in this. <laughs> I always think 42 years, it's uh, got to be worth something. And they come in, they go, $200,000. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, businesses uh, trade uh, based on um, the price agreed to by a willing seller and a willing buyer. So you got to have those two. So Google is way overpriced, or was well, it? Go- no, it was Yahoo. Which one sold that was way over? Oh, well, it was a uh, Facebook yeah. sold way overpriced. Well, but we're talking about a restaurant in North Little Rock, and and so you know how, how do I sell that business? And the value of it is, you know, a business owner plays two roles: they're the manager and the owner. The the owner is getting compensation for making the investment, and the manager is getting compensation for working. Okay, so most of us are both managers. And owners, so we're investors and and manage and, and employees. Yeah. And and so the value of the business is really driven to the investor, is really driven by how profitable the business is, um, for the for the owner, Be, because. So they uh, look at the owner's salary. Uh, they look at the manager's salary and for how much? Salary. Yeah. How much can I can I make in salary or compensation, to to run this business and and. Um, you know that's that's a factor in how you value the you know how you value that. Do they, and there's a lot of people uh-huh. who who don't make a profit as an owner. They're only making enough money to pay their salary. They're just making salary. Yeah. So that means their business isn't worth as much as they think that it's worth. Well, I have a lot of inventory. What's the what's the what's inventory worth? Well, it's not well, worth what I think it's worth. Well, it depends on what the inventory is, it's too. It's probably aged. It probably has something to do with the age of the inventory. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on, you know, a flag that sits in a box for three years looks like the flag that you that's in a box that you got yesterday. So so it oh, really it's not depends. perishable, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it really depends on what the inventory that, that, that we're talking about. But the components of the value of the business are the earnings and uh, and the inventory, and do you own the building and the land where your business is? Because you might is. sell the building with it. 
Yeah, so there, so there's just so a, a lot of. So how do you measure accountant and, and, and help and I, you value it? Well, most there's some accountants who are uh, eligible or qualified and trained to to uh, appraise businesses, but that's a very expensive process. Very and then I get emails all the time from people saying, "Do you want to sell your business? Do you use those people? Do you?" Oh well, those people are intermediaries, you know, looking for deals. How and do, so, yeah. so, so that's if you're desperate, you use them, uh, get it done quick. Well, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with those people who are out looking for. What if I want to sell to, my business tomorrow? How would I go about it? Probably the best thing to do is go to your competitor. Oh, I see. I mean, because they understand the business, uh, they could use the inventory. Uh, they, they, you know, so you look I, for a syner- synergized partner. Uh, yes. Is that the right way? Yeah, so, somebody who can, you know, who, who, who can appreciate benefit. what, and, and maybe you're doing business in a way that's better than theirs. So, and it might be a smaller business or a larger business, but, you know, going to a competitor or uh, someone who owns a business that it might be a complement. Uh, uh-huh. to, to, yeah, to their, to their, their product line. Yeah, to something that, that kind of makes sense, you know, for, for their business. So management. before we change off the succession subject. Yes. And we didn't talk about ESOPs for passing it on to your employees, which I love that one. There's a lot of grocery stores out there that are employee owned. Yes. And I love that. Have you ever done one of those? Yes, we, we've actually worked with some people who have done are that. Are they and, successful very much? Um, yeah, many times they are because m- most of the time um, they're leveraged e-shops. So What's that I, mean? That means a bank has to make some loans to... Uh, to the to the plan to to cash out the owners uh-huh. and, um, and and so in order to get a bank involved in an ESOP, there's a lot of eyes and 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 uh, and then it has a board probably. Yeah. So so in other words, it's vetted. I mean, it goes through a process that if you put in a, a leveraged ESOP, then then there's. Um, just elements in the plan that that, that lend to its and success. They all, and all the employees pretty much keep their pay. They just kind of get stock. Isn't that right? They just become partial owners. just like yeah. a stock in the, com- in the company. It, yeah. It, you know, they're, they're kind of working for themselves, if you will. If I wanted to, if I did go and sell my business to somebody, to a synergized company for me, uh, uh, another flag company, let's say, would you owner finance it? I had a girlfriend owner finance the sale of her business, and then it went belly up, and she ended up not getting any money. Have you ever seen that, where the owner finances it? Yes. You you don't like it, I can tell. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell by the look on your face. You're not a banker, Carrie. Don't start financing people. Yeah, I mean, if you were selling a land and a building, uh, I mean, it's because well, you, it's, you it's, can go it's, get it's it every, back. Yeah, because you can get that back. But, but they run your uh, business into the ground, and now you've got it and back, and you got to start out over, and you were trying to retire. Yeah, you know, if the bank's not going to lend the money, then there's not any reason for you to lend the money. So, by and large, I, I'm not real crazy about that. So, you idea. know the story of the town cobbler whose children have no shoes? Yes. Do you have a succession plan? <laughs> Since I'm all wrapped up in your life, um, yes, this, I, I'm, I'm listening to this yeah, answer really yeah, closely. Yeah, yes, I do. Oh, so there, there, there's a short-term and a long-term succession plan. I can tell it's private. Well, that was really good, wasn't it? Absolutely. He's good. He wants to come on again. Yeah, Barry needs to come on again, and we'll pick another topic, because he is a wealth of information. So we've got another person that we edited their show down, Ryan Hargett from Chef Shuttle. This kid is a rock star. I've actually, since we had that interview, had Chef Shuttle deliver a few times to my apartment, and it's great. 
see his interview with us paid off he got a new customer yeah all right i'm gonna tell you a little bit about ryan this interview is with ryan hergett an entrepreneur from an early age as early as high school when he first started his first business which was power washing the neighborhood sidewalks and driveways and by the time he left high school he sold that business and had twenty thousand dollars in the bank at 18. he's a he's an entrepreneur to the core but today we know ryan as the founder of chef shuttle a restaurant delivery service that is currently in 42 cities across arkansas and tennessee to date chef shuttle has partnered with more than 425 restaurants and has 225 delivery drivers always thinking yes he is ryan continues to implement innovative partnerships with boat delivery on lake hamilton so he partnered with raft up and he's also partnered with floral deliveries so raft up is a service an app you can have while you're out boating and you can get chef you shuttle to deliver food friends and oh yeah call the police and let them know exactly where you're hurt we need to replay his sometime that was a good that was a good one yeah um Chef Shuttle's mission is to deliver a variety of products in a timely fashion on a national scale. Let's hear what this ambitious, young entrepreneur, Ryan Hergett, has to say about his current endeavor, Chef Shuttle. Welcome to the table, Ryan Hergett, founder of the innovative delivery service, Chef Shuttle. So let's ask the question that's probably the most important one. Are you married? I'm not. I'm not. The, uh, the startup small business lifestyle, uh, especially in the beginning, sometimes limits your opportunity. So I am uh, I'm not married. Um, I read where you work seven days a week, and since you started Chef Shuttle, have never had a day off work. I actually changed that a couple of weeks ago. I took Saturday off, and it was a good Saturday. And you and the reason you never take a day off is what we're you know there's a you've got your traditional small business, and then you have your startup, and the difference is a startup. Our goal is not to be in business 20, 25, 30 years from now. Our goal is to build a company as fast as possible and then to uh, uh, position ourselves to uh, potentially be acquired. And so we're trying to go from zero to 100 in a five-year time frame. We've got a, you know, a few acquisition targets, whether it be an Amazon or a Google, that would be interested in entering our business. And so we've got to get to a certain point in the next couple of years, and so it requires a lot of work to get to that point in such a short period of time. What is that point, or can you share it with us? Uh, we want to be in 15 markets. You know, 15, 20 markets is our goal. Um, does that mean states? Uh, market we define as a metro area. So here, starting in 2017, we have new software launching, and we are opening one market every two months starting in February. So we'll open, you know, whether it be a Tulsa or Oklahoma City or a Nashville, and we're going to grow – in these uh, mid-sized metro areas that are the size of Little Rock or Memphis. We're not looking to go after the Dallases or the Los Angeleses, going after the smaller metro I areas. I think that's smart. And we're, um, we're looking to get to the 15, 20 metro areas and, and position ourselves. you've already ourselves. done Little Rock. You've already done Memphis. And we've done Northwest. So you said you're doing software. I thought about that. All these deliveries seems like a logistic nightmare to me. Do you have your own, I wondered if you had your own software, if you developed your own software, or if you're using something out of the box. We are currently using something out of the box, and that's our biggest constraint right now is the software, the software provider we use is apparently, you know, is the best in the nation out of the box software, but his software was only designed to for do... For <laughs> yeah, No, what was it designed 10, for? 10,000 orders a month, and oh. we're doing 30,000 orders a month. Um, and so we've outgrown his, the software, and so now we're looking to build our own 
in order to be able to uh, to scale because the the limit on our growth in terms of opening new markets has solely been from a software point of view. So we're going to get rid of that hurdle uh, when our software launches in the next couple couple months and and then grow from there. Making your own software is a nightmare. It is. It is. How long have you been working on it? We've been working on it the last six months. Um, and you think you're going to launch it by the spring? We've got a really good team on it. We're, we're not so. Are you using a company in Little Rock? We're using a. We couldn't find anybody in Arkansas. Mm. We, we're using a company out of Dallas. One of my philosophies is if you want to, you know, grow as fast as Chef Shuttle and, and our dreams are, that you you've got to find third parties that you trust in to become the expert for you. Mm-hmm. We, do, we don't have time to become the expert in absolutely everything. And so when it comes to our software, we found a third party we trust to become that expert for us. You've got to have deep pockets to just do what you said. We've, uh, we've got investors. We've, we have investors, and we're going through a round of funding right now. You didn't go to a bank to get investing. To get inve- you didn't go traditional banking, did you? No. I, I've told people this story with, with my father in the room and with, without my father in the room. But if it wasn't for him, you know, I would have, uh, I wouldn't have done this, you know, because if he would have given me everything I asked for and everything I wanted, I would have never had a need or desire to try to get what I wanted if he provided it for me. And when he took the approach of, I'm going to provide you the essentials, you're not going to starve. You're not going to go without a, you know, without a roof over your head, you're gonna have a good life. But you're not going to be the, you know, a spoiled kid. You're not driving the brand new car. You're driving a very old car as your first car. You're not getting $100 a month. You're not getting my credit card. You're getting $20 a weekend. And he, by him being disciplined, it either made, it, I had two choices. Either I figure out how to budget the money or I figure out how to earn more. And that's what I did. I figured out how to earn more. And if it wasn't for that decision, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. And I think the second thing mm-hmm. is he would always preach, do the right thing. Um, no matter the situation, it was do the right thing. And, and doing the right thing is not always the easiest thing to do. Doing the right thing is very often the harder of two choices. And he had always preached, do the right thing. And, and I think that is one of the primary reasons for the success that, you know, I've had is I've always tried to do the right thing. And it, it, sometimes it was unpopular at sometimes it cost, sometimes it cost us money. Sometimes my employees didn't agree with it. Sometimes my investors didn't agree with it, but by doing the right thing, you always come out ahead. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've trusted in that because he instilled that value in me. And, uh, and, I, and I thank him for that because uh, it's a big reason for, for everything we've done so far. 99% of the population has always looked at their career as I graduate college and I'm gonna work for 40 years or for 50 years and I'm gonna save up until I become 65 or 70 and I'm gonna retire. And I'm gonna yep. live out yep. the last 10, 20 years of my life with the retirement. Right. And you know, for over half of my life, I'm going to spend only two out of seven days enjoying my life so that the last 15 years of my life, I can expend seven out of seven days. He's a numbers guy all the way, isn't he? <laughs> well, and 
I think with, with the younger generation that I'm included in, some of us have a different thought. And my, my thought is what I'm going to do is I'm going to work 110 hours a week. And that's what I work. I work 100, 110 hours a week, and I'm going to try to make enough money to where I have the ability to retire by the time I'm 30. What? And it's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of great people, and it's going to take a lot of luck, and it's going to take a lot of breaks. But that's what we're doing right now. And it's hard for somebody to comprehend, what do you mean this is, this is what you're going to do? This is not the norm. This is not what you're taught. This is not what everybody else does. What do you mean you don't have a 401k? What do you mean you're not putting a little bit into retirement? And it's because I want to invest any money I make into startups. And what I'm going to do is if I'm not retired, if I, if I don't have enough money to where I can retire by the time I'm 30, I figure I still have 30, 40 years in the workforce to catch up with everybody else. Exactly. And so this startup life cycle that I'm in right now is let's do this until um, let's see what happens. And I think right now with Chef Shuttle, we're doing, people would be surprised with our revenue numbers. We're doing several, several millions of dollars um, a quarter. Um, when did it start? When did you start it? 2014. From when you had the idea in New York City to when you, to when you got it off the ground, how long did it take to, to come fruition? Three months. That's pretty darn fast. So you're you're sitting in New York City, and you and how does the idea come to you? You didn't go up there with this idea, no, but you got this idea when you were in New York, didn't you? Yes, you're uh, you're getting food delivered every day to you. Um, you while you're in New York. While you're in New York. Um, it's a lot easier. Most of the restaurants offer delivery because all you have to do is put somebody on a bicycle and they can hit, you know, quite, quite a big part, part of the city. And I looked at the South in particular and looked at my hometown of Little Rock and I said, there isn't a service that can offer convenience to customers. And that's when I decided I'm going to come back and I'm going to start Chef Shuttle. And so we started February 3rd, 2014 on my living room couch with seven seven restaurants a couple drivers and you know chaos and <laughs> the first i love that chaos yeah, though the first eight weeks in the first eight weeks we did what we thought we were going to do in revenue for the entire year of 2014 how did you get it off the oh, ground yeah. in three um, months so I went to the restaurants. First to sell them. So would you like for me to deliver your products because you don't have anybody to deliver your products? Mm -hmm. And they said yes. Yes. And it wasn't a hard sale? No, we're bringing them incremental business. They wouldn't have gotten. You know, if a, if a, if a customer wants to go eat out, Chef Shuttle stance and view is then go. But go to one of our partner restaurants if you want to go eat out. However, if you want to stay in, Instead of cooking, order from one of our partner restaurants. And so for the restaurant, you know, our business is based upon them. And so we try to push them as much business as possible. And in turn, they'll let us deliver the product because 95% of a restaurant's customers are going to fall within a five-mile radius. With Chef Shuttle, we can expand that radius to 10 or 15 miles. So you go to chefshuttle.com and you have a list of the restaurants that you will deliver. Yep, so you put in your address, and it'll show you all the restaurants that are delivered to your address. And how did you get 
consumers to know about your website to go there. So you've gone to the restaurants, you've told them about this service. Now you've got to get consumers to know about it. So the restaurants are telling their consumers or how? Yeah, a lot of it is a partnership with the restaurant. We take a commission from the restaurant off everything we sell for them. Okay. It's how we make our money with Chef Shuttle. Our pricing model is same menu, same prices as the restaurant. We make our money because the restaurant's going to pay us a commission off everything we sell. We process everything through our website. So when you check out and put your items in your cart, you know you're paying the same menu prices. There's a $4.95 delivery fee added. The tip's optional. Uh, we do encourage it, though, because that's how our drivers make the money. It goes 100% to our drivers. So you went to the restaurants, got them to buy in, and I'm sure, I think you probably did that yourself, right? Yes. And then, and then you did, and then you took advantage of the postal service. What did you call that? Were they every door direct mail? Every door direct mail, which I think is wonderful. And then you did yard signs. Where would you do yard signs? In front of the restaurants. In front of the restaurants. And um, our our big thing with Chef Shuttle is, if you look at most of the advertising we do, it'll we include our restaurant logos in there because Chef Shuttle, as a standalone brand, you know what does Chef Shuttle do? Are they chefs? Are they pickup? Are they delivery? Are they an order, ordering process site? What is Chef Shuttle? But when you associate Chef Shuttle with our restaurant partners, then it becomes clear. Restaurant delivery. And here are the restaurants I can get my product delivered from. So we really try to use uh, a co-branding strategy with our restaurants and with ourselves in order to really drive home our message that Chef Shuttle is restaurant delivery. So he is a rock star. I want to have Ryan Hargett back on in a year to do an update of what's happened, where he's going. Absolutely. He just gets inspired by everything around him. So uh, we've got one more. It's Matt McLeod, the artist. And I like this one because it's different. All three of these have been very different from each other. And Matt's is a story of faith and luck and hard work and I just I just really like his story so let me read a little bit about Matt for you Matt McLeod is a highly successful painter sculptor and muralist specializing in fine art for residential commercial and public art spaces he has a huge mural in downtown Little Rock right across from McLeod's fine arts gallery after graduating from Southern Methodist University in 1987 SMU Matt spent a 15-year career in advertising before becoming a full-time artist. In 2015, he took a leap of faith and he opened his very own McLeod Fine Arts Gallery in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. He has a wonderful story of hard work and faith. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And now my interview with artist, painter, sculptor, and muralist, Matt McLeod. Welcome to the table, accomplished artist and entrepreneur, Matt McLeod. Thanks, Carrie. You're welcome. Matt, you say about yourself, and I quote, I paint energetic color. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I think that every artist is always trying to, at some point in their career, find out really what they're trying to get at with their work. Artwork is a communication with the viewer. And every artist that matures begins to realize that they're trying to say something and they're trying to get at something. 
And I think in my evolution, what I've been exploring is that I believe that we're all made up of energy. And, you know, I don't know whether that's our spirit or what it is about us as people that are living and walking the earth. But at some point, we all very much are interested in connecting with each other. And the great thing about art form is it's an ongoing process of connection. And so the more I examined that, and the more I sort of tried to boil down the essence of humanity, the more I sort of got in touch with the fact that we're really human beings that have and contain a sense of energy. And so what I'm doing with my paintings is trying to explore that all the time. And I'm trying to essentially look at things that I see around me. Often they're rather mundane things, but if I can take a mundane thing, explore what I believe is the essence of life and make that subject sublime by communicating the energy that I feel that we all share, then I've really done something. And I'm able to connect with the viewer in that way. So I may have made a big circle on that, but essentially what I'm doing when I try to show energetic color is I use the tools that I have, which are paints, colors, shape making, and to try to communicate the energy that I feel that we all share. So that's, in a sense, energetic That was color. absolutely beautiful. <laughs> well. It was. So when Jeez. did you first know that you had this gift? Or have you all, has it just always been there? Mm, well, you know, I don't always look at it as a gift, but I appreciate you saying that because that means that you see it as such. You know, for me, it's, I think artists know that they have to do it. I think there's a little bit of talent. I tell people that, you know, when I teach students, I, I say you have to have a little bit of talent and then you have to have a whole lot of work. And, you know, if you put 10% talent and a 90% work ethic and you work at it really hard every day, you're going to get really good at it. And, you know, I so think that's... So it's just practice? Well, there's a part of being able... First of all, you're not going to practice unless you love it. And so yeah. there's a response that you're going to have as a visual art form. For me, it's, it's looking at something and recreating it and recreating it in a really interesting way. And I really get a kick out of the viewer that sees something that I've done. Because essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm looking at something, I take it apart and then reassemble it using my own ability, creative creativity and energy to make something that I hope is even more. And so I love that part, but you have to be in love with it to practice it. So my best answer to you is that it takes a real desire to do it because you kind of really get a kick out of it, but then you have to pile a bunch of hard work around well, that. Well, that takes me to my next question. Did right. you study art? No, I didn't. Actually, when I went to school uh, 83 to 87, I didn't know anybody in Little Rock that was making a living as an artist got a degree in advertising and thought that I would, in the advertising business, I'd be able to combine both business and creativity. And you can. And so that's what, you know, that's what I ended up getting a degree in. And I really did not study studio art at, at SMU. So you had to decide to quit working and getting a regular paycheck mm -hmm. and to decide to take that leap of faith. Mm -hmm. Was there something that triggered that? Yes. And, you know, it was pretty profound in my life. Um, and and, and you, you talk about leap of faith, and, uh, and that's really what it was. Um, okay, so if I take you back about 15, 16 years ago, I was working for Martin and Melissa Toma. They were my last employer. We went through 9-11 uh, oh. together, and they had a small firm at that time. I was uh, trying to find out what I wanted to do. I was really studying a hobby of painting 
uh, at that time. And, you know, they were tremendously supportive people and very much about living your dream and finding out what you're really good at and utilizing your talents. And that discussion, that sort of environment made me think about what am I doing and what am I really want to be doing? I guess you sort of hit a point in your, I sort of think of midlife at some point, you know, mid thirties, early forties, something like that. And you go, what am I doing? What do I really want to be doing? And I knew I was in love with my hobby. And I had a lunch with a guy one time and he said, you know, what do you, what are you really passionate about? And he goes, I go, well, I'm passionate about your, being your account executive. And he goes, okay, well, let's set that aside for a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he smelled it out and he said, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're a good account executive, but I I get the feeling you're really passionate about something else. But don't think about the question. Just tell me right off, what would you really love to be doing right now? And I said, you know, I'd love to be a painter. I'd love to be an artist. I just don't think I can make a living doing it. He said, well, you know, whether you make a living doing it or not, I think you need to give it a shot. You got one life and, you know, I think you ought to give it a try. And it was, that was profound for me. But I did think it was a, you know, a God moment. I thought it was, I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not here to preach any religion. You did go it, to Southern Methodist University. Well, <laughs> I did. And, you know, I have my own faith. And I thought that was one of those moments that just didn't come out of um, coincidence, you know, that was right. meaningful. Post 9-11 is what, what I'm really trying to get at. Oh, okay. And, and the economy was terrible. Most of the people that we were talking to and trying to um, either find accounts or servicer accounts were not spending. Right. Everybody was freezing their spending. And we lost uh, one account because they just reviewed it every three years. And the other account was acquired. And then the rest of our accounts that we had on staff weren't spending. So one morning I had this conversation with Martin Toma. He sits down with me and another person says, you know, I just haven't been making, I haven't been drawing a salary for my own business in the last two months. And I just, we have, we're going through a tough time and we're going to have to cut back. We're going to be part in, and so I'm going to have to lay you off. And the first reaction when you, somebody tells you they're going to lay you off, is like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This is terrible. This is horrible. But I took it another way. I went, you know, Martin, this is a good thing. And I think this is a God moment for me. I mm-hmm. think I'm supposed to go be an artist. And he said, Matt, you'd be a great artist. Mm-hmm. He said, I want to support you. I want you to leave today and you can go be an artist. And we're going to help you with a, a severance payment to help you do that. You know, I almost feel sorry for people who have a really great job, but they are not fulfilled. Yeah, I do too. Because they don't get pushed out into the world to go and find out what their path is and what their passion is and where they should be because it's too soft where they are. Well, I couldn't agree more, Carrie. And, you know, the scary thing about it was I had a a house payment, two car payments, you know, a child, you know, just all the reasons that you have to, you know, try to be secure. But, you know, you said leap of faith, and that's really what it was. And I just thought that these were two very significant signs. I went to your first show. (laughs) It was in 2006. Talk about bearing your soul, ready to show your work and for people to judge it and to judge you. Mm -hmm. How hard was that? Well, it was really hard. It was scary as hell. I wouldn't kid you to tell that it was anything else. Um, it's just, just absolutely scary. You know, it's like it's like you're holding up your children and you're just hoping that nobody says they hate your baby's ugly, you know. Yeah. At some point, you have to say to yourself, okay, look, not everybody's going to love me. And they don't. And so you have to focus your attention on the people who do love you. And, there's, right. and, and, and you can start with your family. I think one of the best things to do is to sort of start uh, accounting the people who really love you and care about you. And, you know, I started with my family, my friends, and just anybody that I thought would come and support me in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put it out there in the public. And if people don't like you, you know, most of the time what I found is people keep it to themselves and they just don't come. But people who do love you and, and really want to support you will come over and over and over again. And that's, that's the real blessing of it. So, Matt, <laughs> not everyone starts a business about their passion. Right. 
Talk about opening your gallery and the fears you had to face. Well, you know, you talked about um, living your passion, and once I became an artist, that's really what it was all about. And, and But at some point, you know, I think what we've all been talking about, starting off with um, very modest means and trying to drive your business, at some point you realize, I can only make so much money um, doing this. And, you know, it isn't all about money, but at some point, you know, we've been talking about responsibilities and obligations, you know, car payments and electric bills. And, and I began to, to want to be a muralist and, and work on some public projects. And I actually got a meeting with Mayor Stola about some ideas that I had. In that process, he said, you know, you ought to go talk to this guy who's bought these buildings over on Main Street because they're looking to create a creative corridor in that area. And we'd love to see some visual arts in that area. And I did. Part of that conversation was that they really, I could see that the city and the developers and people who were wanting to really kind of bring Main Street back uh, and revitalize it, I wanted to see real creative elements down there. And I thought, well, wow, you know, I want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Because not only I can be an artist, um, I can be part of revitalization of Main Street. And this is my Main Street, you know. And so I really, that really resonated with me. So I began just showing up at meetings. You know, just, just showing up and having conversations with people who were trying to create something really interesting and vital and, and, and uh, you know, creative in, in the city is how I ended up finding space in that building to open a, a gallery and was also able to do a mural across the street. Um, so was signing the lease scary? Yeah, it scares the hell out of you. You know you've committed to a certain amount of money. Uh, the other thing is a payroll, trying to meet a payroll every week. Are you punching a clock these days? Yes, I'm there. It feels like I'm there all the time. You know, I get a day off every once in a while, but there's very few days off, you know. But, you know, when you love what you do, it doesn't feel like it's work. So pricing your work. Artists never think their time's worth anything. I still think I'm a bargain, but you know, quite honestly, people in Little Rock are a shop for a bargain. And so that's part of it is that you have to understand what your market is, you know, willing to pay. Uh, but I think people do need to spend a little more uh, on, on really quality artwork. But it really, the, the reality for uh, pricing, that's what you're asking. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, there has to be a pragmatic side. I would, I t when I, if I was to tell another artist, I would say, okay, look, you know, be, be ultimately pragmatic. Look at you know, what your materials really cost you. Look at the time that you're going to put in on it. And what's that, you know, if you put an hourly rate on that, what would that come up to? And then look at it as, it, how, you know, how many paintings am I selling a year? You know, and what does that mean? The business and side. What of do it. I need to make, and how do I cover my costs? Because the thing that breaks my heart is to see artists who are really talented who can't make a living. And you were mentioning part-time work, and that's part of it too. You know, some people go back to you know wait tables or you know, and I've done all that. I've done every anything, everything. I think most artists don't have enough business sense, and sure. you understand an income statement right. and a balance sheet. Right. And it's not just oh. I bought $10 worth of paint, I'm going to sell it for $20. Right. There's overhead, there's employees, there's advertising. I mean, they just, there's a lot that goes into it. Well, I think that most artists work on the right side of their brain. And, um, and actually, that's good for me because, um, you know, they allow me to use my left side of my brain to help sell their work and, and handle a lot of those business things. But a lot of times what I do is I start my work in my camera. So, you know, I'll walk around with my camera all the time finding interesting visual compositions, and I'll start composing within the rectangle of that viewfinder in, within the camera. And I'm not a great photographer, but I, but I start thinking in terms of composition and light 
and that's fun. That's really, really fun. You feel like you're an artist when you're walking around sort of kind of creating within your camera and thinking about ideas that you might turn into, into That's a great paintings. tip. Have you got any real advice for somebody who wants to do art and oh, get gosh. started? Well, it's not that simple of an answer. Uh, uh -huh. Being Because a lot of artists are very much interested in showing people and the figure. But, you know, the thing is, what I would say is embrace what you really love and, and and just run with it and I just happen to be someone who's always looking at landscapes I like people in landscapes things in landscapes but I'm always searching in that direction because that's what drives me and so if I was to you know talk to me the starting artist you know 15 16 years ago I'd say look what is it that you really feel like you need to say or that you really respond to embrace that completely and work your butt off for it and don't and don't be afraid to supplement your income in other ways and but just keep working at it that's what I would say don't give up thank you Matt Well, ever since that interview with Matt McLeod, I look at the world differently. I'm not kidding. I get up in the mornings and I see a big orange sunrise over the hill when I'm walking the dog and I think, oh, I'm going to take a picture and send that to Matt. I think of the world a little bit different. I love this show because I've interviewed so many different kinds of people. If you want to be on my show, just send me your entrepreneurial story and let's talk. I'd love to hear from you. Send you a brief bio and your contact info too. Questions at upyourbusiness.org. Next week, we've got a great guest. It's going to be Lori Parrish from Sheridan White Rock. It's a rock quarry business. That will be a blast. And I finally, know. I know, right? Go girls. Uh, who would think of them in the rock quarry business? That's right. a trip. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program's been about you, you're right, but it's also about me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next Friday at 2 p.m. on KABF Radio in Little Rock, Arkansas. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Want to hear today's program again or want someone else to benefit from it? Jot this down. Within 48 hours, the podcast will be available at upyourbusiness.org or at flagandbanner.com. Again, that's upyourbusiness.org. Click the tab labeled podcast. There you'll find today's segment with links to resources you heard discussed on this program. Carrie's goal to help you live the American dream.